you got your Bibles, man, I hope that you bring them with you each week uh, because it's always good to hold it in, God, in God's Word in your hand to be able to, to read it for yourself, to make some notes, and, uh, and to go back and look over this. Um, I shared with you last week, uh, as we started this little series in Hebrews, that Hebrews is written more as a pastoral letter than this theological treaty. It is, it is written as a, a letter of encouragement to Jews who had begun with the Lord, but now we're in, in some ways drifting back into Judaism. Uh, we, we shared that part of what was going on in this, in this day is that these Jews had come to know Jesus, many of them had, and they became believers in Christ. And, and things went pretty good for a little while. And then they began to be persecuted. Then they began to, to have some sins of the past maybe pop back up, and they weren't quite sure what to do with their sins. They knew that Jesus had forgiven them for their past sins, but they weren't quite sure what to do with these present sins. What do I do today when I struggle and I fail and I fall? And Judaism offered this sacrificial system. They could go back and prove to God they were sorry by offering a sacrifice, which was very comfortable, very uh, familiar to them. And so some of the Jews were, were, were kind of drifting into this grace plus mentality. Yes, the grace of God can save me, but now I need to do something to keep myself saved. Now I need to do something to prove to God that I'm sorry when I sin, to, to, to make it up to God because I blew it. And so there's this tendency for them to, to drift that way. And the writer of Hebrews is calling them back to a pure grace. And to, he's calling them back to this life that has, has already been, the, the sins have been paid for, the, the, the debt has been paid. Jesus has done it all. And so he starts in Hebrews chapter 1 showing that Jesus is, is superior to all the prophets, that Jesus is superior to the, the angels and, and to all of those. And, and so we covered a lot of that last week. And this week I want to dive into chapter 2. Now, the last week when we ended, we ended with the first couple verses of chapter 2. I want to grab those again, kind of reintroduce them, and then move forward into the rest of this chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 together and see what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. Now, he's, he's shown that Jesus is, is exalted above all, that he's already uh, the, the one, the supreme one. And, um, and then he says, therefore, we must pay most, more, much more. Let me back up and get this right. Here we go. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, to the gospel that Jesus revealed, the, the gospel of grace. It, it's, remember, the Old Testament covenant was a, a covenant of law, and Jesus comes, and, and the Bible says that Moses introduced the law, but Jesus brought us grace and truth, and he's saying we must pay more close attention to this gospel of grace, to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So he's saying you need to anchor yourself to the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is built upon the grace that Jesus brought to us. For since the message declared by angels, and let me explain that just a second. The message declared by angels, he's referring to back in the Old Testament when Moses went up on the mountain and God met with him and God gave him the Ten Commandments. There's places in the Old Testament that would teach that, that, that the angels helped to reveal that truth to Moses, that they were present at that time. And so it became a, 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 a common belief of that day that, that these angels were messengers of God that delivered messages. And we know that like even with Mary, when, when Mary and Joseph were uh, being prepared and groomed by God to, to bring forth the, the son of God that the angels spoke. And so they're talking about all these things that the angels have revealed. But, but here specifically talking about the law that the angels declared. And he says the message that, that these angels declared proved to be reliable. It was trustworthy. It was accurate. 
And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. It, it, it received what it deserved. God said, if this is what you do, this is a blessing that will follow. If this is what you do, these are the curses that will come. And these, were the, these are the punishments that will come. And, and, and he says in that Old Testament law, the law was given, it was enforced, and, and there was a consequence or a reward based upon those things. And he says, so if, if this was true of the message that the angels spoke, how much more? Is it true of the message that Jesus speaks? If Jesus is superior to the angels, and, and the angels help reveal the truth in the Old Testament, then how much more powerful and how much more serious should we take the message of Jesus? So if the message declared by angels was reliable and, 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 and enforced, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape? If we neglect this grace, this pure grace, this salvation by, by faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, how will we escape? How will we come through? How will we fare if we go grace plus anything? This message of salvation, he says, it was declared at first by the Lord Jesus and it was attested to, by, to us by those who heard it, so the disciples, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit that he distributed according to his will. So he's saying this gospel of grace, it was revealed by Jesus. It was then repeated by the disciples. It was then reinforced by God and, and reinforced through, through signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, and, and those, we always group those together, but those are actually three different things. The signs that pointed forward, the, 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 um, the wonders that left people just in awe going, this must be God. And then the miracles that people knew had to come from God because no man could do what had been done. And he says, God also bore witness by the gifts that he gave through the Holy Spirit that he distributed according to his will. So here, here's what he's saying, man, this, this gospel of grace is something that was given to us by Jesus. It was, it was, it was re, re, uh, repeated by the disciples and given, handed down to us by them. And then it's reinforced. It's God places his stamp of approval and says, this is legit. And here's ways that we know it. So he's saying this message of grace is something that we've got to pay much more close attention to. Because if not, we will drift. I always struggle with how to make the flow of a message make sense. And I think it's, it's probably proper here to, to just stop and say, here's some dangers, okay? Why is it important that we build our salvation and we build all of our lives upon this grace alone? And, and let me just throw it out there at first because I think it'll help make sense of, of what we're about to say a little bit later. If I do grace plus anything, grace plus my works, grace plus my church membership, grace plus keeping sacraments, offering a sacrifice, grace plus anything, that creates this great insecurity inside of us as believers. And here's why. Grace plus anything, grace is secure, but everything else is not. If it's grace plus my good works, then I'm saved as long as I'm good. But if I have a bad day, 
or I have a bad week or a bad month or I have a bad spell, then I'm insecure. Am I, am I saved or am I not? If it's grace plus church membership, well, have I joined the right church? If it's grace plus sacraments, have I, have I done the sacraments? Have I done them all? And some churches have one or two and some have more. But, but, but have I done them all? Have I done them at the right time, the right order? Have I done them, at, at, you know, exactly the way they're supposed to? And so grace plus anything creates an insecurity. Because I'm always left going, have I done enough? Have I done it right? Have I, have I, have I made myself pleasing to God? I know I need grace, but when it's grace plus, then it brings about this great insecurity which erodes our assurance of salvation. Whereas if it's grace alone and I have a bad day, then I say, Lord, you know what? I've blown it today or this week or this month or this last stretch of my life. I've blown it, but thank God it's not up to what I do. It's up to everything that Jesus has done. And at that point, there is great security because it's not resting upon Jesus plus me. It's just on Jesus. And he is faithful and he is able and he is, he is, he is the one that can do it. And so w- when we start drifting from grace alone, we put ourselves not, not in danger of losing our salvation. I'm not saying that. But we put ourselves in a place that we lose our confidence before God. We lose our assurance before God. And, 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 we, and we tend to, to be, become more and more enslaved to the fear. The, 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 the fear that what if I'm not enough? What if I haven't done it right? And that fear grips our soul and it paralyzes us and it leaves us unable to produce the fruit that God would desire in our lives. So this issue of grace is not just a theological thing. And, oh, well, I need to get my theology in line. This, this has practical implications for how I live every single day. And when it's grace and grace alone, then I have great confidence that even in my failure, his grace is sufficient. Now, some would say, when you go with that, you're giving people a license just to sin and to run and do anything they want to do. And that is not true. Grace alone ought to make us the most thankful, appreciative, grateful people in the world who would rather do anything than sin against the God who offers us grace. When grace really grips your heart, it ought, to, it ought to cause something to change inside of you that says, man, the, the worst day of my life would be a day that I would run from God, that I would turn from God, that I would disobey God. The worst thing I could do is to, to injure the one who loved me and died for me. Grace does not bring with it this license to sin. If anything, it brings this desire not to sin. And I think those who think that grace gives you a license to sin have yet to taste what pure grace is. So here he's saying, this is, this is why it's so important. And so he, he comes back now, he circles around. Uh, it, it's almost like a preacher preaching and says, hang on, let me, let me put a parenthesis in here. Let me say this real quick, and then we're going to go back to what we're talking about. So he goes back to the angels, and he says, look, Jesus is superior to the angels. He's talked about that in chapter 1. He comes back to it here in verse 5, and he says, now, now here's, here's proof that Jesus is superior to the angels, and it's proof that, that what we're talking about is, is, is really important and worthy of you to listen. He says, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, we've got to take all those parts and look at it, okay? What's he talking about right now? Is he talking about present life? Well, here he says we're talking about the world to come. So he's talking about our future. 
And again, that's where our security rests, is in the, in the future, in the promise of what God's made to us. So he's, he's saying God did not subject the world to come. He did not subject eternity, the future, to the control of the angels. Who's going to be in control of our eternity? Jesus. Who's going to rule for all eternity? Jesus and, Scripture says, those who belong to him. Okay? So what he's saying here is he's saying, you want to know that Jesus is superior to the angels? I'll I'll tell you how. God did not subject the world to come to the angels. He subjected the world to come to Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. And and so he's he's going to build that argument here now in the next couple verses. He's saying it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, the the world of which we're speaking right now. For it has been testified somewhere. It almost sounds like the guy forgot. Oh, somewhere in the Bible it says he knew. But the writer of Hebrews never really draws attention back to the Old Testament writer as much as he does to the Old Testament scripture. So he says, look, in the Old Testament, this is what it says. And here he takes a quote out of Psalm chapter 8. It's written uh, by David. It's a psalm that's written where, where David is going, Lord, who am I to be so blessed by you? Who am I to to have you even take notice of me? And he's going to take that Old Testament prayer of David's and he's going to begin to apply that to who Jesus is. So watch what he says here. Again, written in the Old Testament about mankind, but now it's going to be applied to Jesus in in the New Testament. What is man that you are mindful of him? This is what David was praying. God, who, who am I? Who are we that God would even take notice of us? Or the son of man, our children, our offspring, that you would care for him? For you made him for a little while lower than the angels. We talked last week about God's order of creation, that there's the grass and the fields and there's the animals and then there's the humans and then over the humans were these angels that that are heavenly beings and then, of course, God the Father. And so he's talking about the order of creation, the order of of, of God's uh, established uh, creation that, that mankind has been made for a little while lower than the angels, yet you've crowned him with glory and honor, and you've put everything in subjection under his feet. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the, the, the garden, dominion over the animals, dominion over God's creation. That's God's plan, and that was what God intended. We know that that changed at the fall. This ground that had been favorable and supportive of man now turned to thistles and thorns. The animals, that everything began to change at the fall. But this is the way God created it. And this is what Jesus came to reestablish. So again, written, David is writing about himself. Lord, who am I? Who are, who are these people that you would be mindful of us? But you know what? You could also read that passage and, and say the same thing about Jesus. Okay? that God had made him for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus took on flesh and became human. And for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. But God has crowned him with glory and honor. He's put everything in subjection under his feet. And here's how he ties it together. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, again, again, we're still, this, and this is where scholars will, will disagree a little bit, and I don't know that it makes a huge difference. But some will say, here he's talking about everything being put under Jesus' control. And others will say he's still talking about the way that God had created it. So it could be talking about humanity as a whole. 
Or he could have already shifted gears here and be talking about Jesus. But just, just bear with me. He says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. Again, that's true in creation. It's, it's also true of what, what God has done with Jesus. So either way, maybe both, both are. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Everything's not right now the way God had intended for things to be in the garden. Would you agree? We're living under a curse. It's not right now, at present, we do not see everything the way that God fully intends for it to be. Now, here's the good news. That means there's more to come. That means that, that when I struggle in this life, the way that the, the, the readers of the book of, of Hebrew were struggling, and when I'm persecuted and when I fall short, that I, I, can, I can live with hope that this is not as good as it gets. That there is more yet to come. And so he's saying here, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. It, it, there's more to come. This is not all that there is. We can't see that. But God can. And he says, but we see him who for a little while. Now, this is talking about Jesus because he's fixing to name him, okay? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So there's no doubt now who he's talking about. Some will say Jesus wasn't lower than the angels. Yes, he was for a while in his incarnation. So he's saying, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, this is, this is what's cool. If he's talking about in these verses just before it, in verses uh, uh, 6, 7, and 8, about humanity, and, and who are we, Lord, that you would, would take notice of us? Who are we, God, that you would love us? Who are we, God, that you have made us lower than the angels and have crowned us with glory and honor and, and put things under our feet? Lord, who are we? And now he's saying, here's Jesus who was in the same place. Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while. Jesus was crowned. Look at, look at these verses in, in, in verse 9. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. What's he saying? Jesus became like us. In the book of John, the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what he's saying. Who are we that God would take notice of us? God did more then take notice of us. God took on flesh and became one of us. Why? Because he had to do that to die in our place. He had to do that to offer us this grace that the writer of Hebrews is calling his readers back to. So we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Again, namely Jesus, he says, who was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Jesus Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And and it it flows out of this this death, this willing sacrifice that he was willing to, to make. And why did he do that? He says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's what's going to be so important that we understand. In order for Jesus to die in our place, Jesus had to become human. He didn't give up his divinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. But Jesus is spirit, just like the Father is spirit. And in order for him to be able to die, because that spirit will never die, he had to take on flesh. 
And it's that human flesh that, that was crucified and died. His spirit never died. Just like our spirit will never die. But Jesus took on flesh so that he could then be that sacrificial lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world for the sins of the world. And Hebrews will come back later on in this book and he will say that Jesus didn't enter the Holy of Holies made by man's hands. He entered the Holy of Holies made by God. And he didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrifices that man can offer. He offered his own blood in our place. And so here he's describing that what took place is that Jesus came and he became one of us. He lowered himself below the angels and God has crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering that he went through, the death that he died. So that, all of that was, was necessary, so that by the grace of God, not the grace of God plus our works, but by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Here's what he's saying, verse 9. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus tasted death for us. Verse 10, he's saying Jesus is our Savior. He says, it was fitting that, that, that he, talking about God, for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, God not only created us, but he holds our existence in his hands. He, he made us for him, and we were made by him. And it's fitting, it is fully acceptable that in bringing many sons to glory, there's our salvation, that he would make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. You say, how do you make Jesus perfect when he's already perfect? It says here that God made the, the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. That word perfect doesn't mean without blemish. It means this. It means that he was made complete. His sacrifice was completely acceptable. Because he took on flesh and, 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 and he shed his blood and his sacrifice was, met the exact, was perfect. It, it met the exact requirement that God demanded through him dying in our place. And then here's the cool, here's the good news. So, so he's, he, is, he is our substitute, he is our savior, but Jesus is also our brother. Look at this in verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that means to set us apart, okay, from the rest of the world. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So the one that does the work and those that receive the blessing, okay, all have one source. They all flow from one Father. We all come and have the same Father is what he's saying. And he says, therefore, that's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So Jesus comes, he becomes one of us, and he refers to us as his brothers. Now, it's interesting when you look at this, this terminology of brothers, and we use that terminology here, don't we? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of you call me Brother Rob. It's, it's just a, a term of, of, of family and, and together. But here's the interesting thing. The word brother was never used prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. We only see it in the New Testament after Jesus died because it wasn't a possibility until after he had offered that sacrifice of himself. But he refers to us as, as brothers, and he, he, he says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. 
you ever had a family member you're kind of ashamed of? I think most families probably have somebody in their family you're going, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. Before you even meet that person, I'm sorry. (laughs) And if you don't have one, you probably know somebody who does have one like that. Think about this statement that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother. We don't even live on the same level that Jesus lives on. We could never be deserving of a title of of brother to the Son of God who was perfect, who gave himself for us. But Jesus came and he gave himself for us, and it says he's not ashamed to call us his brother. This is my brother. This is my sister. Jesus is not ashamed to, 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 to associate with us. He came and lived in flesh and blood. He died for us, and he is not ashamed of us. And then he uses another quote. And when I read this, I've got to share with you the image that, that came to my mind. But let me read it to you first. It says this, I will tell your name. This is Jesus speaking now. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Here's the image that I get when I read that. I get this image of of a child who grew up with his father, knowing his mom and his dad, but having siblings that were separated at birth that never got to know their true parents. And that child that grew up knowing the father and knowing the mother then goes and and finds and seeks out his siblings that have never met and says, I want to tell you of your father. You're not an orphan. You have a father. And here is your father. And so I think that's what Jesus is saying. You're my brother, but but even more than you being my brother, you have a father. I, I will tell your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will exalt you. I will make you known to those who are your children that never even knew they had a father. And isn't that what Jesus came to do? To reveal to us the fact that we have a heavenly father that, that loves us. A heavenly father that is willing to do whatever is necessary to bring us back into relationship with him. That's what grace is all about. And so here's Jesus saying this again. He's saying that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. In fact, he seeks us out to let us know that we are his brother. And he seeks us out to let us know that we have a father that loves us more than we can ever imagine. That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel of the Lord. And, and he says, I will, I will sing of your praise. And then again, Jesus says in, in verse uh, 13, I will put my trust in him. And, and then he says in the, in the very next phrase, and behold, I and the children that God's given me. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to live my life in trust of this father. But not just me, but also the children that God gives me. I'm going to teach everybody I know. And anyone I have influence over, that they should also place their trust in the Father. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Don't put your trust in in God's grace plus. Put your trust completely in Him. And influence and persuade and urge everybody you know to put their trust and their faith completely in God. So Jesus came in the flesh. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? Because for his sacrifice to be in our place, he had to become one of us. He had to become a human, flesh and blood. 
Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now there's two different words here, the word share and the word partook. And they mean a little bit different. The word share means they hold in common. So he's saying, since the children share something in common, they share flesh and blood. All children, all of us that Jesus came to save, we share something in common, and that is flesh and blood. But then he says, so Jesus likewise partook of the same thing. Jesus didn't share flesh and blood with us, but he partook of something that was not natural, was not normal, was not who he was. He took that on himself, flesh and blood that he might die in our place. So he partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now that's, that's a lot to swallow at one point. Let's just kind of break this down because I, I want it to make sense and I want you to be able to apply this. So Jesus took on flesh and blood to become like us, so that through his death, he could destroy the one who has the power of death. And then he says, that's the devil, to make sure we understand who he's talking about. So Jesus, through his death, would destroy the devil and deliver all of those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. So when Jesus died and was resurrected, he destroyed the power of Satan. And and he eliminated this power of death, this threat of death over us. We see that in the, the disciples of Jesus, right? Before Jesus is arrested, before Jesus is, is convicted and tried and died and resurrected, they are scared for their lives. When the guards show up in the garden, what, what do the disciples do? Man, they flee and they abandon Jesus because they are trying to save their lives. And yet we see him on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, after the, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the pouring out of God's Spirit upon them. And we see them standing up and saying, you can tell me to shut up. You can tell me to quit preaching. You can threaten to kill me. You can take my life, but you can't silence me anymore because the fear of death has been removed. Why? Because the one I follow is the king of the resurrection. And guys, the same thing is true for you and I. If we are going to live a life of grace and we're going to live a life uh, uh, that's pleasing to God, then, then someone had to come and break this fear of death because all Satan has to do is dangle that above us and threaten us. And he silences. But when we follow Jesus and realize that our security is not in saving our own lives, but our security rests completely in him and he is the God of the resurrection, then that removes the fear of death. So Jesus partook of the same things so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So Jesus' death destroyed the devil and it delivered his people, uh, all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And let me just, let me wrap up this part and I'm going to come back and share with you an example of what this, how it all kind of fits together, I think. And he goes back to the mention of angels again, verse 16. For surely it's not of the angels that he helps. So Jesus didn't come to save the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He he didn't come to save the angels. He came to save sinners, flesh and blood people like you and me. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that 
he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, this atonement, this payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in this passage, he refers to us as these lifelong servants or lifelong slaves. And we are held in in prison, if you will, to this fear of death. But in Christ, we are given this brand new identity. His grace has covered our sins. His grace has paid for every, every, the penalty of everything that we've ever done or ever will do wrong. And so Jesus is sufficient. He is, he is all that we need is what he's trying to say. And, and he's saying now that we've been given this new identity. But just because you've been declared free does not mean that you know how to live free. When I went on our sabbatical, Janet and I took about four days, three days, four days on the way up to Tennessee, and we traveled the Civil Rights Trail. And I stopped at, at every museum I could find. And I read about the horrors of slavery and enslavement and the torture and the threats and the lynchings and all the things that took place in our, in our country's history. And there were moments as I read that I just couldn't speak. And going, how could man do this to man? How can man treat others that way? I, I could talk for hours about the things that I read and the things that I saw. But I wanted to understand our nation's history. And I want to understand the, the plight of those who had been enslaved and their ancestors and those who've come after them, many of whom are my friends today. And here's what I learned, that just because the Emancipation Proclamation was issued didn't mean that these people who had known nothing but slavery knew how to live or had the power to survive on their own. I I, I try to imagine, and it's almost impossible for me to do, but maybe maybe you could do it this morning, to try to imagine being a a fourth or or fifth-generation slave, that that's all you've known, that's all your grandparents and great-grandparents and those in the past have known. That's all that they've known since coming to this country. And you've lived under a taskmaster who has threatened you and, 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 and maybe beaten those that you've loved to an inch of their lives. And then all of a sudden, a president signs an Emancipation Proclamation, and you're told that you're free, but your owners are trying to make you think that you're not? Or, or they, they, they make life so hard on you once you're free that you would beg to come back and just to be their slave, to put food in your stomach and to feed your baby? And, and, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be declared free, but still stuck in a society that would tell you you're not. And to tell you that you're property, that you're enslaved, that, that wants you to, 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 to be, to remain enslaved. They want you to, refa- to fail. They want you to return and subject yourselves to them again. That hostile environment and those people of prejudice don't want you to survive. Even though somebody with greater power has deemed you to be set free, they didn't want you to be set free. 
They didn't want you to succeed. In order for you to succeed, you're going to need some outside help. You're going to need somebody that is for you. Somebody that wants to help you. Somebody that wants to give you the opportunity to to make it. And and, and while Jesus came and he died and he, he defeated, if you will, Satan... And he declared us to be set free. Many of us don't know what it means to be set free. We've been been locked in the chains of sin and slavery to Satan for so long that we don't know how to live free. And we don't know what that means and we don't even know what that looks like. And the world that we live in is not for us. The world that we live in wants to see us fail so they can laugh at another believer who fell flat on his face and messed up just like the rest of the world does. We need outside help. And we need long-term help if we're going to succeed as believers. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to just do the work of salvation and leave you to fend for yourself. I'm going to be right there with you. I'm going to live in you, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to give you everything that you need for, for, for a life of godliness, it says in the book of, of Peter. We need protection, provisions, opportunities. We need to grow and, and, and learn what this new life looks like. We need someone that can encourage us. And so Jesus came and didn't just set us free. But he came to provide everything that we need in order to live free. Because Jesus never intended us to go back to that life of slavery. He came and he destroyed the one that had the power of death. But he destroyed his hold on us. But we still live in this hostile environment. It's not favorable for us. And so Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us access to the Father who not only created us, but sustains us and supplies us and empowers us. And God also gave us each other. Those that were set free from slavery in America learned that there were many outside their race that wouldn't do business with them. That wouldn't give them anything to succeed. And they had to learn to depend upon one another. And they had to learn to create, if you would, their own family, their own group of people that they could trade with and that they could support and that they could encourage, they could help. And they began to do that. And and, and for some, it was very, very successful. And so what did the enemy do? Burns them out. Black Wall Street. It's just destroy the whole section of those people. Everything they've worked their life to build. And we have an enemy, guys, in the spiritual realm that still does the same thing. He he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy what God's trying to do in us. But the Bible says a greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And so we need to learn how to live as free people. We need to learn how to live for what that means. And so if Satan can convince me to go back to grace plus... He's got me in his grip because then all he has to do is attack me and threaten my security. 
But if I realize that my salvation is by grace and grace alone, and it is protected in who Christ is, and he cannot fail because he's already defeated the enemy, then I can stand. And so what happens is that we've got to realize that, that Satan is, has been robbed of his authority. Uh, he, he's been robbed of his power, his legal power over us. But like a KKK Klansman, that hatred for us is still there. That desire to dominate and control us and to intimidate us and to put us back in our place is still there. And he tries to use that power of intimidation in very subtle ways to convince us that we are not free and that we never will be. But the writer of Hebrews says that we've got to stand, refuse to listen to his lies, and trust God for the provision that we need to become the men and the women that he created us to be. Satan's hatred for us is not going to change. Even after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed here in America, and slaves were technically, legally set free from their plantations. In many ways, they suffered greater after that than they did before that. Because as long as they were property of the plantation, the beatings would only go so far. Because to kill your slave means you just lost that money you spent to buy that slave. And so while they were still a slave, they were somewhat protected by that owner. Even though they were treated harshly and cruelly, they, 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 we're only going to go so far in this beating. But the minute they were no longer somebody's property, that's when the lynching started. And that's when this all-out attacks began because it, I don't have anything to lose. I can kill you. The juries are all going to be white. <laughs> They're all going to support me because the blacks can't vote and you, you can't be on a jury if you don't vote. And, and, and this whole thing begins to blow up. But, but, but what I'm saying is this, that, that as long as they were somebody's property, the, the property of this slave owner, they were mistreated and they were held in, in fear, but, but they weren't necessarily going to be killed because that didn't benefit the slave owner. But the minute they were no longer anybody's property, then an all-out assault took place. Janet and I toured two different museums that dealt with lynchings. And one, y'all, I can't, I can't even put into words. It was these massive steel tubes with the names of those who had been lynched in every single county and parish in all the states that lynching took place. And we walked for hours. And you read Calcasieu Parish, and it lists the names of all those that were lynched in Calcasieu Parish. And then you move on to Jeff Davis Parish, and you move on through Louisiana into Mississippi and into Texas and into all these southern states. Where, and you just stand there, and, and there, is, there is no war. You're just looking and going, that was somebody's son, somebody's daughter. That was strung up because they just happened to have the wrong color skin. That's what Satan wants to do to us. As long as we belong to him and we're not creating a stink, well, we're still slaves of sin, but he'll, he'll go okay. But the minute you become a child of God and he has nothing to lose, there's this all-out assault that takes place. 
And so sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. And, and, and I think that's what's happening in the book of Hebrews is that these, these Hebrew people are, are now suffering for their faith. As long as they remain Jews, as long as they re, remain a part of that system, they, they were treated okay. But the minute they stepped outside of that, there was this all-out attack that Satan brings against them. And so they're kind of wanting to go back a little bit and make it easier. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't go back to that slavery. Don't go back to that old covenant. Don't go back to that old law. You've been saved by grace. Jesus has set you free. You've got to see that you've been given a new leader, one that loves you, one that cares for you, one that provides for you, one that died for you. Don't go back to life on the plantation. Don't settle for that old life. Realize what you have in Jesus. And realize, the writer of Hebrews will say, that he is enough. He knows what it is to to live in flesh and blood. He knows what it's like to suffer and to be tempted. And so he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's what he's saying. Jesus has not only set you free, but he is right there to help you get on your feet and to learn what it means to live this new life. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come and just die? And even, even just die and be resurrected and say, okay, I've done my part, you're on your own. I've signed the Emancipation Proclamation, now good luck. But he comes alongside of us and he helps us every minute of every day to live this godly life. Peter wrote, we have been given everything that we need for life and for godliness. God's given it to us. We've just got to learn to live in this new freedom. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't you dare drift back. Pay more careful attention. Study and understand what grace looks like, what it has done, what it has accomplished for you. And don't ever let anybody enslave you again to that old life that you once lived. I wonder today if you've tasted that new life that Jesus offers us. I wonder today if, if you have reached that point where you know that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and that your, your eternity doesn't rest in what you do, but in what Jesus has done. Your success and your failure is not what saves you. It's what Jesus has done on the cross that gives us our security. He gives us our, our assurance of salvation. Because Jesus did it perfect. Because we couldn't. He died in our place and shed his blood because our blood was not enough. So what are you trusting in? And how do you know if you're trusting fully in the grace of God? Let me, let me ask you to think about this. When you slip into sin, and when you blow it, and you do something that you go, man, I, I, that, was, that was horrible, do you immediately begin to question your salvation? Man, I, I don't even know if I'm saved. 
I don't even know if I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can ever make up for that. Is that where your mind goes that, man, I just don't know. If, if that's where you go when you fail, then you may be trusting something other than just the grace of God. Because what you're saying is, okay, this is grace and that's good. But man, when I blow it, maybe I'm not even a believer. Maybe you're trusting in something other than grace for your salvation. Who, who am I trusting? Who is it that guaranteed and purchased and sustains my freedom? Is it me? Because you see, there were runaway slaves that made it off the plantation and, and began to run. But you know what they did the rest of their life? Spent their whole life looking over their shoulder. They weren't really free. Jesus has declared us free because of what he's done. And for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, there is a freedom that no man can take away. And the only person that can enslave you from this point forward is really yourself by not trusting in what Jesus has done. So the writer of Hebrews calls us to put our faith and our trust completely in Jesus. He's greater than any prophet, chapter 1. He's greater than any angel. He's greater than anyone else. And he took on flesh. He died the death that we deserve. And he tasted death for us. There's nothing left for you to do. Put your faith and your trust in Christ. And if we will do that, then we can live free. As Jesus died to make us, we can live free. If you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, if, if maybe you're here at church today because you're thinking, well, if I just go to church and get my, my life together, then God will be happy and maybe I can make it to heaven. You're trusting in something other than the grace of God. The grace of God comes to those who say, God, I cannot and I never will be able to. I need you. I need what Jesus did on that cross to cover my sins. And at that moment, grace becomes real. Don't just try to change your environment. Don't just try to change your outlook on life. Come to Jesus bankrupt and say, I, listen, a slave could never set himself free. It had to be somebody with more authority and outside that system that declared them to be free. And we needed Jesus to come, to take on flesh, to die in our place, to set us free. Don't trust in anything other than what Jesus did for you. Because to trust in anything other than what Jesus did for you is to leave you short on that day and to leave you with a less than a full assurance that when you die, that you'll see Jesus face to face. So let's pray together. If you've never invited Christ to be your Savior and your Lord right now, you can do that right where you sit. You can pray and you can ask Jesus to be your Savior, to, that you realize that he died on the cross for you, that he was resurrected that his blood that he shed was enough to save you. And you can put your full trust in Jesus Christ right now just by saying that to God, saying, God, I put my life in your hands and I trust what you did, not what I can do. And right now as we pray, you could pray that prayer. Maybe you've already done that. And today you're just kind of like those Jews in that day. You, hey, I, I, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Man, I'm still trying to, to work to please God. Maybe today you could just say, you know what, God, I'm going to put my whole trust in you. And I don't want to work for grace, but I want to work from grace with a grateful heart and a thankful heart.
wherever you're at right now, would you talk to God and just be honest and be real with him? He will meet you where you are, and he will set you free. Let's pray.